turn with me to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter, with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is, small, is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Carla. Good morning. If you are joining us for the first time this morning, uh, we've been studying uh, the letter of James, where we find that in the world that is infested and, and just shot through with manifold counterfeit wisdoms, there is a real wisdom that can be possessed through the scriptures and by the power of the Spirit on the basis of the blood of Christ. And so it is uh, my joy to be able to continue that study this morning. Uh, but before we do, let's go ahead and turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for that cross where the wrath was satisfied. I sang that line and almost, it just almost got away from me because we're doing what we always do. We're singing, we're doing church things. But what a profound truth, Father. That even though my thoughts and words and deeds, my desires, my inclinations, my very nature has heaped up for me your righteous wrath. That you and your wisdom and your love and your grace provided a way for that wrath to be satisfied not through the punishment of us 
but when you poured it out on your son. Father, thank you that he took it all. And that there is not one stroke of the whip, not one thorn, not one nail left for me. Thank you that I received the righteousness of Christ, that I am cleansed by your spirit, that I have been made just in him, that I am welcomed in your family, adopted as your son. Thank you that this church is an embassy of a royal kingdom that will one day fill all the earth. And Lord, all we want to do as we study this letter is learn how to live that way. Not to fake it. Not to paper over what's really going on with a veneer of religiosity but to have the real thing. Lord, we we know that that can only happen when you move, when you work. And and so we pray that you would work through your word today. Point us to Jesus. Empower us by your spirit, please. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, Today, as you could tell from the passage that we just read, a few moments ago, we are going to be talking about one of the most fascinating parts of the human body, the tongue. So I thought I would begin today by offering up some fun facts about the tongue. These are things that I actually didn't know before this week. Fun fact number one. By the way, you know all these are true because they came from the internet. So you can just take these to the bank. All right. Fun fact number one. The tongue, I didn't know this, is not a muscle. It's actually eight muscles. I didn't know that. Eight separate muscles. And, by the way, it's the only set of muscles that operate independently from the skeleton. Kevin, you probably knew that. I didn't know that. Fun fact number two. While it is true that the tongue can taste different types of flavor, sweet and bitter and sour, etc., There are not different tasting zones on your tongue like I was taught in elementary school. That is a myth, even though I learned it in a science class. Uh, Actually, I knew this one before this week because my kids disabused me of the wrong notion a few months ago, which is always a humbling experience. Fun fact number three, taste buds are too small to see. I didn't know that. I thought those little bumps on your tongue were taste buds. They're not taste buds. Taste buds are smaller than that. Uh, and you have between three and 10,000 of them on your tongue. Uh, they're microscopically small. Fun, fun fact number four. If you wanted to set a world record for the amount of mousetraps released by your tongue in one minute, I don't see any takers, but you could do that, but you would have to beat Casey Severn, whose record is 53. Fun fact number five, no two tongues are alike. Your tongue is as unique as your fingerprint. Can you imagine all the applications that we could take from that? Fun fact number six, human beings can use the muscles in the tongue to shape sound, form words, 
and communicate ideas. Now, that's not actually a fun fact, and I did know that before this week, and you probably did too. But it is this last fact, this function of the tongue, the tongue's role in shaping speech, that James is focused on here in James chapter 3. It's this function of the tongue that actually causes James to use some of the most vivid and arresting and offensive language in all of the New Testament and really all of Scripture. This is why I've chosen to to title this sermon, Demonic Germ-Infested Poison Fire. That's literally the way that James describes the tongue. He says it's set on fire, fire from hell itself. It's full of deadly poison. It defiles the whole body like biohazardous waste. It almost seems as if James is being a little unfair to the tongue. Like, is this really that bad? Is he exaggerating here a little bit? Is James being a snowflake, the word police, unable to put up with a little bit of salty speech? Isn't the freedom to speak speak our mind a good thing, sticks and stones and all that? But what James recognizes and, and what any wise person recognizes is that We must pay very close attention to the tongue. Here in chapter 3, he's continuing to expand on what he's already brought up in chapter 1. That is, that James wants us to know that God's goal for us is to be complete. He wants us to be mature. He wants us to embrace real wisdom and to recognize its counterfeits. He's already said that if a person says he is religious but is not able to bridle his tongue, then his religion is worthless. And now he's going to tell us why. So today, since we've already talked about some of the fun facts about the tongue, we're going to observe from this passage three not-so-fun facts, three serious facts, if you will, three critically important facts about the tongue that we will need to know if we are going to live wisely and skillfully as Christians under the new covenant in the world that is opposed to him. Fact number one, the tongue is an instrument of power. The tongue is an instrument of power. Notice how James begins this section of scripture. Not everybody should wield the power of the tongue in the position of a teacher. Not everybody should stand behind a pulpit. Not everybody should be a Sunday school teacher or teach an equipping class or or lead a community group because the tongue is so powerful that those of us who use it from a position of authority within the community of God's people will actually face stricter judgment than everybody else because it is that much more of a responsibility. We will give an account for the vast impact of our words, and if you're not able to do that, then you'd better not put yourself in the position to be using your words to lead a group of people. This passage sort of operates on two levels. On one level, yes, James is talking about the the power of speech for any believer, any Christian, and we'll get to that in a moment. But notice how he begins. What precipitated this conversation is this other layer, the reality that there are certain people in God's church who were using the power of the tongue to steer the community in ways that were going to come back to bite them on the day of judgment. James explains this. He says the church is kind of like this massive ship. And you've got this big ship, and it's got a, a, a powerful engine or maybe these huge sails, and it's going to move in a direction because it's a big thing, and, and it's just huge. And, and yet, it's guided by this tiny little rudder. 
the teaching that the church chooses to heed. He says the church is like a great stallion, but that massive, powerful animal is going to gallop wherever it is directed when the rider pulls on the bridle one way or another. How do God's people know where to go and what to do? It's not like other types of institutions. It's not controlled by impersonal forces like supply and demand or the market dynamics or uh, some result of a, of a battle on a battlefield somewhere else. The church moves forward on the basis of what the church chooses to hear and heed. Who's going to be behind the wheel? Who's going to be pulling on the reins? Who's going to be steering that ship? It's whoever the church chooses to listen to. And so what James is saying is that we better be careful about who we put into the role of teacher. They had better be someone who is mature, someone who can answer for what they say, because when the time comes for them to stand before the Lord, they will have to give an account for all those things and the effect of their words. The tongue is an instrument of power. You know, just this week I was reflecting on how this has played out in my own life personally, and I thought back to a time when I was in high school, and like many juniors and seniors in high school, I was thinking about what was going to happen after I graduated and where I was going to go, and I had come to the realization that I really felt confident that the Lord was calling me into some sort of pastoral ministry, even though I was a young man. But, you know, I wasn't sure how to prepare for that. I didn't know how to uh, put one foot in front of the other, so to speak, and so I was considering different options. And, And so one day, it just so happened I attended a church service uh, where I, I was part of a, a singing group and with other teenagers, and we were singing that Sunday evening at this church, and the guy that was filling the pulpit just happened to be a, a man with more than 40 years of public ministry experience and the former pastor of the church where I was a member. As far as I knew, he was one of the wisest people in my orbit, and so I was really interested in his opinion, and we had a little bit of time before the service started, so I went up to him uh, before we began, and I said, uh, you know, here's my situation, I feel called to ministry, and I'm not sure what to do next, and in a single sentence, he told me where to go to college, and what to major in, and then he walked away. And I know that seems weird to you. that I would listen to just one sentence, but if you understand the the relationship of authority and the context of it, I mean, it just kind of settled my mind. And it it was that conversation that caused me to eliminate some of these other options, and I just settled on the one, and I moved forward. And I've thought recently about what, how different my life would have been if that conversation would have gone differently. I might not have met the woman who would become my wife, I wouldn't have taken some of the ministry uh, steps and decisions that I had made in the subsequent years. And, and a lot of the opportunities in my life sprung from that decision. It bleeds almost into every area of my life. And even now, that decision impacts me. And therefore, it to some extent impacts all of you. Now, my point is not to assign praise or blame to anything that he said. I'm thankful for his ministry in my life. He he probably totally forgot about that conversation, and of course, he never asked to be like the decision maker on where I was going to go to college. My point, though, is to underscore the reality that the tongue is an instrument of power. You say something, and you just don't know where that's going to lead. See, our lives are like the snap of a finger, but the impact of our words, 
the impact of the things that we say is literally going to ripple throughout eternity. Have you realized that? Not only that, but the people we choose to listen to are having a greater impact on us than we sometimes appreciate because the tongue is an instrument of power over our lives. So before we move on to the next fact, let's just chase down some of the entailments of this reality that James is bringing out. If it is true that the tongue is an instrument of power, then in the first place, first entailment, we must each carefully examine the sources of verbal authority that we allow into our lives and into our church. We've got to examine the sources of authority. Whose hand is on the rudder? We have to carefully consider this. Who is your trusted source of authority? Do you recognize the power they hold? For some people, quite frankly, their source of authority is a constellation of influences that have nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. They listen to YouTube clips and TED Talks and whatever their friends share on social media and some article that somebody uh, mentioned to them in passing at the break room and some talking head on the news or on the radio. My friend, this is an extremely dangerous way to live. If you are trusting Google or Facebook to like direct you to the content that you need to know, that's not going to go well. You're accessing these services for free, and you know what that means. You are not the customer. You're the product being sold. Is that the kind of teacher you want? Is that the pilot you want steering the boat of your life? If it is true that the tongue is an instrument of authority, then you must carefully consider the sources of authority in your life because they have power over you that you must recognize. Second entailment. You need to know the people teaching you. You need to know the people teaching you. Did you catch what James said? If someone doesn't stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. That means he is a mature man. In other words, spiritual maturity and healthy teaching go hand in hand. They are both necessary. So if you don't know the people who are teaching you, you may very well be exposing yourself to unhealthy teaching and you would have no idea. We must learn this lesson. We have greater access today than ever before to the sermons of the finest communicators in the world. The days of tapes and CDs being sold out in the lobby, they're they're gone. You can get anybody's sermon. You can listen to these evangelical superstars, and because they are tremendously gifted communicators, then you pay closer attention to them than to anybody else, than, than, than even the very men who are part of your church family. Or worse, you leave the church altogether and you say, well, listen, I'm going to church on TV in my living room. I'm going to church online today. No, you're not. You don't even know that guy. How? No offense, but this is probably going to offend you. (laughs) That's foolish. How are you going to know if that guy is trustworthy or not? Is he spiritually mature? Is he a godly man? You have no idea. How many times is a famous preacher with gleaming teeth and a magnetic personality going to have to fall from grace before we learn this lesson? 
God didn't gift the church with celebrities. He gifted the church with pastors, with elders. And I'm thankful for the influence that God's given to some people to spread the gospel all over the place through social media, through technology. That's wonderful. But it doesn't replace the necessity to have godly elders that you know shepherding his church. Peter told the elders of the ancient church, shepherd the flock that is among you. Did you catch that? Among you. The ones who know you. That means you show up and you're in the same room together. That means that truth is communicated through a relationship. The tongue is an instrument of power. And so if you're going to let that power into your life, you need to know the people using it. Entailment number three. And this should be kind of obvious, but I fear it's often not. We need to be discerning in the kind of teaching that we allow into our church and into our lives. The content of it. I just think we've almost lost this ability, the ability to evaluate what someone actually says. Not what you feel like when they say it, not the way that they say it, but what they say. Can we evaluate what they say and whether it's contrary to Scripture or aligned with the Word of God? Some of the most well-known, popular preachers in the world are people who get basic doctrine wrong. That should be a red flag. Paul says that in the last day, people will begin to heap up teachers who just scratch their itching ears. So what that tells me is that Satan, our enemy, he is going to continue to send teachers our way that that sound great, that sound like what we want to hear, and yet we're going to have to fight for discernment. You can't just listen to whatever someone says because it makes you feel better. It might not be true. You can't evaluate a teacher on the basis of whether you like their personality or whether you get a fuzzy feeling when he talks. That's not the criteria set up in Scripture, and this is, it's too important for you to, to wing it. If a man is unable to speak about critical biblical doctrines without lapsing into heresy, that, that should be a red flag. That's not a teacher you need to follow. If he makes a text of Scripture say whatever he wants it to say, then he's not a teacher that you need to follow. If he never references Scripture when he preaches, it's not a teacher you need to follow. It should be basic. On the other hand, entailment number four, if you find a a godly teacher or a group of teachers, a a teacher whose life sets a Christ-like example, a teacher that you can trust to tell you what the Bible says, then be thankful and don't let go. We have several men like this in our city, and we, ha- we are so blessed to have several men like this in our church. The elders of this church have spoken into my life. They've set an example for me. But friends, we need to be on guard. We, we cannot let the foibles and the awkward ticks of the teacher or the fact that we're used to the sound of his voice keep us from the teaching that God has for us. You don't need a rock star preacher or a rock star youth pastor for your kids. I'm not saying that for my benefit. I'm saying that for your benefit. Christians in America today, we trip over ourselves to get to the big important church with all the bells and whistles. And if that's going on, fine. But it's not the bells and whistles or the fact that it's an important church that makes it a healthy church with healthy teaching. It's whether or not it aligns with the word of God. And the truth of the matter is that for the faithful ones whose names you will never know, 
who hold forth the truth and steer the ship through dangerous waters safely year in and year out, they are one day going to stand before the Lord. And I think we're all going to see and we're all going to hear God say, well done, my son. I'm preaching to myself as well as anybody else. We've got to align what we teach and our character with what the word of God says. The tongue is an instrument of power. Fact number two. Fact number two, the tongue has an impact you can't control. The tongue has an impact you can't control. Uh, It was November 28th, 1942, Thanksgiving weekend, less than a year after the United States entered World War II. Anxious uh, city dwellers, eager to let their hair down for an evening of fun, crammed into the Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston, Massachusetts, a popular spot for the local celebrities. The club, the building itself, was a tinderbox. Paper decorations covered the walls and the ceilings. The air conditioning system was filled with flammable gas because Freon was hard to come by during those years. Several exits had been locked to prevent unauthorized entry. At some point in the course of the evening, a young couple, in order to gain some privacy for themselves, unscrewed a light bulb, and minutes later, a busboy was asked to replace it. Naturally, the young man was having a hard time seeing. So he lit a match, replaced the bulb, he extinguished the match, and threw it on the floor, where it skittered toward a window hung with heavy drapes. The drapes quickly caught fire, and the the building immediately filled with smoke. Even though the Boston emergency system was well prepared for the disaster, I mean, they were on wartime alert, still 400 92 souls went into eternity that night. One smoldering matchstick destroyed 492 human beings, ravaged their families, destroyed a building, and sent the club's owner into prison for the next four years. Did you notice verse 5 here in James chapter 3? James says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. Here's the thing about your tongue. Here's the thing about your speech. Here's the thing about your words that you speak or that you write or that you type on the computer. You can control what you say, but you cannot control what happens next. The tongue has an impact you can't control. You say hundreds of things every day, and none of them seems to make much of a difference in the world. And yet, one day, all the conditions are just so, and you say this one little sentence, and it changes the course of your life or the life of the people that you love forever. And you can't control that. You post dozens of comments on social media every week, but then something you said five years ago resurfaces, and your boss finds out. And the next thing, something that you typed when you were 23 years old, leaves you with your job on the line. The tongue has an impact you cannot control. It seems to me that the tongue's impact spreads further than you might realize. This is what James means when he compares the tongue with fire. Fire spreads. We've seen this in our own backyards. A little burn pile. Everything uh, seems to be going fine on a rainy spring morning. And then the wind changes and, and, and the, the brush kind of dries out really quickly. And before you know it, that little brush pile is a conflagration and it could spread to trees in the area and become uncontrollable altogether. 
You say one little thing that casts doubt on a coworker, and before you know it, that suspicion has spread to your entire team. See, the tongues impact, the, the, the impact of the things that we say, they spread further than we realize. The tongues impact lasts longer than you realize. James says in verse 6 that it stains the whole body. Its effects cannot be scrubbed away. They are uttered for a split second, but they hang in the air sometimes for decades. Nearly everybody in this room has statements echoing back to when you were a child. Statements that were uttered in haste or carelessly by a parent or a teacher or a spouse or a mentor. And for good or bad, you will never forget those statements. They hang around the corners of your mind every single day of your life. You know what that's like. There are things I remember hearing from a pulpit or a Sunday school lectern that I still struggle to shake off because they were rooted in a man's twisted opinions of what Scripture says. Words last. The tongue's impact lasts longer than you realize. Notice also that the tongue's impact is more potent than you realize. James says it's full of deadly poison in verse 8. Do you know how much poison you need to ingest in order to be affected by that poison? Not very much. Just a little bit. And we throw our words around as if they do not matter. But James says what we're doing is we're spitting poison. A wise person recognizes that the potency of words is impossible to overstate. What you say, what you write, what you type matters. It matters a lot. And guess what? You can decide what comes out of your mouth, but you have zero control over its impact. Even a child can understand this. We used to... uh, When teaching children, we used to empty out a tube of toothpaste onto a paper plate. And then I would say, hey, 10 bucks to any child who can get the toothpaste back into the tube. You can't, right? It's just like our words. We say them, you can't take them back. So let me ask you a question. If your words were like a match that ignited the heart of your spouse or your kids or your coworkers, or your acquaintances, or your friends. What kind of fire would break out? If your words were like a match that ignited in their hearts, what kind of fire would break out? Would it be the fires of revival and the love of God in Christ? Or would they be consumed with jealousy and rage, inordinate desire, hatred, and bigotry, and lies? You want to know the one area of life that the Lord convicted me about as I meditated on this passage? And I share this because I think there may be a few people in this room who can relate. I'm convinced this is one of Satan's favorite ways to crawl like a worm into the life of the church and the family. Isn't it through the way that our love of humor, of laughter so easily becomes a means by which we pass off every kind of wicked talk as okay because, hey, I was just joking around. Amen? I think it's safe to say this is really a problem, especially for us men. So I want you to pay close attention to this. C.S. Lewis, and I know I've I've gone back to him a lot lately, but C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters, you can get a copy of that from our library and read it for yourself. It would not take you that long. Explains that there are actually four causes of laughter, of laughter. He says they are joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. And he makes the observation that both joy and even fun 
are of little use to our enemy. But when a joke becomes a pretext or a thinly veiled cloak over something vicious and unkind or an excuse to to speak in a perverted way, Satan rejoices. Cruelty, cowardice, all manner of vice can be passed off as innocent when we frame it as a joke. But that fourth cause of laughter, flippancy, is one of the enemy's greatest weapons. Here's what Lewis says, quote, among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it, but every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. You know, it seems to me that this cynical, sarcastic, flippant way of talking has infected our culture so thoroughly that we've almost got to the point where we don't even recognize it anymore. We just assume that everything has a ridiculous side to it, even things that God wants us to take very seriously. And we're tearing each other apart with our words under the pretext that what we're saying actually doesn't matter because we're just joking around. Proverbs 26, 18 and 19, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. I just made a body joke about a sister in Christ or about my own wife. But I was only joking. I just told everybody on social media that I, I wanted a bunch of public servants and politicians to die a horrible death. Hey, it was only a joke. I just told a racist story to my buddies while my son played a video game in the next room and heard every word. But I was only joking. I just trashed another woman's appearance talking on the phone to a friend my, while my daughter was sitting in the back seat of the car. But I was only joking. And the effects of these little harmless jokes as we throw them out there all day long are going to spread further than we realize. They are going to last longer than we realize. And they, friends, are more potent than we realize. What you say matters. The tongue has an impact that, quite frankly, we cannot control. But here is the flip side to this. Imagine if at Indian Creek Baptist Church, if in every one of our families, we were characterized by wholesome speech, seasoned with grace, covered in hope, infused with joy, if we spoke the truth in love every day, if we respected the power of our words and we used that power for the glory of God to build up brothers and sisters in Christ, to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ, do you know what kind of impact that would have? It would be immeasurable, friends. And quite frankly, this is one of those passages that I am painfully aware I am the last person that should be preaching it. Because I've been so convicted about this. I want my wife and my kids and my brothers and sisters in Christ to hear me speak the truth, to hear me speak words of hope and healing, to hear me say that Jesus Christ is alive and therefore nothing that we do in his name will be a waste, to hear me express my gratitude for the blessings God has given, for the ways that he's answered prayer. I, I, that's what I want to be known for saying. They need that. You need that. Because the tongue is an instrument of power and it has an impact we can't control. And here's the thing. We can't, if we're going to do that, if we're going to be that kind of church and if your family is going to be that kind of family, we can't just simply change the way that we talk. 
That, that's just not how it works. And that leads us to our third fact. Fact number three. The tongue is an instrument of power. The tongue has an impact you can't control. And number three, the tongue is an indicator of the condition of our hearts. The tongue is an indicator of the condition of our hearts. Did you notice how James closes with illustrations? You you can't draw fresh water from a salty pond. You can't get figs from a grapevine. The nature of the source determines the product of that source. And the same is true with our words. What you say arises out of what you think and what you desire and what you love and what you worship. What a sobering thought. When you speak, you are revealing things about your heart. Uh, This past Friday morning, as I was jogging around pathetically uh, in southeast Mineral Wells trying not to die, uh, I decided uh, to listen to a sermon from one of the evangelists I had heard preach many times when I was a young man. He was preaching from that passage in Judges chapter 12, uh, where, uh, really a dark story, like most of Judges, but the, the Gileadites were prosecuting this sort of civil war against their neighbors, the Ephraimites. So they set up this checkpoint at the fords of the Jordan, and whenever anybody tried to cross the river, they would, uh, try to, they would stop them and try to figure out whether they were a friend or a foe. Hey, are you from Ephraim? Are you one of our enemies? Me? No, not me. I'm not, I'm not an Ephraimite. I'm a good guy. I'm on your team. Okay, well then say Shibboleth. Sibboleth. No, no, no. Shibboleth. Can you pronounce it? Shibboleth. Fibboleth. See, the Gileadites knew the Ephraimites couldn't pronounce it right. And so once they figured out Who could say what? We're told that 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Now, I don't really think that this is the point of the passage, but I think it, it illustrates what James is talking about very clearly, doesn't it? They said they were from Gilead. They said they weren't from Ephraim. They swore up and down that they were friends and not foes, but their pronouncement of a single word betrayed their true identity. And the difference was a matter of life and death. James says, out of one side of our mouth, we're blessing God, but then we turn around and curse our brother. It's like what he's already said before. We say that we are religious. We say that we have a relationship with God. And yet, when we turn around, we we say, bless God, but then we turn around, we betray the true condition of our hearts by the way that we talk about other people. If we really loved God... If we really believed in Jesus, if we were really walking in the Spirit, if we were really being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, then we would talk that way. Not just when we walk into the church building, not just when we're teaching Sunday school and we kind of keep everything buttoned up for an hour, but at all times. When we're in the break room, when we're in the car with our family, when we call our sister on the phone, when our kids do something that boils our blood, when God sends a trial, and then another trial, and then another trial. If you're living in the love of God in Christ, then that will show up in your speech consistently. Why is it that so often it's the people who gather to bless the the, the name of the Lord on Sunday morning are also sometimes the same people who go out and give the business to the restaurant server on Sunday afternoon. It, it, the reason why is because we've got a problem of our heart. 
it's not ultimately about what we say, it's about our hearts. And, and you know how that changes? It changes when we welcome the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we walk in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You remember what happened in the life of Isaiah the prophet? Think back uh, with me to Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He's high and holy on his throne in the temple and immediately overwhelmed by the pure presence of the holiness of God. Uh, Isaiah throws up his arms in despair and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I've said so many things that betray a heart that rebels against the God who made me. I've said so many bitter things, so many hateful things, so many untrue things, so many perverted things, so many harmful things. I've passed them off as a joke, but I know they're really serious. I've torn destructively through my life and the lives of the people that I love, and I've slandered the glory of God with my lips. Woe is me. I cannot stand before a holy God. And then an angel comes to him and takes a burning coal from off the altar and touches the prophet's mouth. And it's not entirely clear how much Isaiah understood, but we now know what that altar represents. It is a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who atoned for the sins of the world. And when that coal touched the prophet's lips, we saw that yes, even for these words... Even for the fire set ablaze by wicked tongues, the sacrifice is sufficient. The blood is enough. The forgiveness of Christ is full. And we can walk forward transformed and forgiven and confident and assured that we are in him. Do you hear me? You'll not be able to move forward by just changing the way you talk. You have to come to Christ for forgiveness and walk forward in that. Why wait? Why are you being stubborn? Yes, the tongue is an instrument of power. The tongue has an impact you can't control. And the tongue is an indicator of the condition of your heart. But friends, listen, it is a tool that God, when he takes control, can use to bring about his great glory. Would you pray with me now? Let's just take a moment to respond to the word of God. Father, you've promised that when your word goes out, it doesn't come back empty. And I pray that you would work today in hearts to convict of sin and to convince sinners that forgiveness is available in Christ. Lord, we love you and we want to be faithful to you and I pray that you would make us so. As we take a moment to respond in the secret places of our heart, I pray that we would not be distracted. by the pool of this world but that we would be fully sensitive to what you're doing in each of our hearts and father we pray this in Jesus name